you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 180th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, we begin our topic of DEIB with a very impressive guest, Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. Dr. Gold is the founder and owner of Gold Enterprises, LLC, an independent, 100% woman and minority-owned consulting firm founded in 2016, which provides inclusive strategic planning, educational sessions, executive coaching, and facilitation services for aspiring multicultural and anti-racist organizations that value everyone, capitalize on cognitive diversity while being profitable and philanthropic. Dr. Gold brings 25 years of experience in DEI strategic planning, facilitation, multicultural organizational development, intergroup dialogue, truth and racial healing circles, project management, and change management. Dr. Gold was honored as a 2020 leader in diversity by the Baltimore Business Journal and the Higher Education Excellence in Diversity Award for Towson University in 2020 and 2021. Dr. Gold was most recently selected as a Tory Birch Fellow in 2022. Dr. Gold is pursuing her next master's degree in social impact strategy at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us today. May I call you Shauna or do you prefer Dr. Gold? Please do. Please do. Please call me Shauna. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. I like first names for myself as well. So feel free to call me Kim. I am so glad to have you here. I know we tried to do this last year and our schedules didn't permit, but I am persistent and I want you as a (laughs) guest. So I'm so glad that you're here. One of the things I thought I could start with was actually something that I think my audience may not know what we're talking about here is cognitive diversity. What exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it's the assumption that diversity is not cognitive. It's only altruistic. It's only based on the perceived differences of people. But cognitive diversity is a little different because when we think about cognitive diversity, we're thinking about all the different ways in which people learn, think, and process. So that may be anything from my son who is ADHD and he is just a genius in various areas, but would be perceived differently if you didn't feel as if that was an asset that you brought into an organization. Or if there's someone specifically that's OCD, for example, and how helpful that can be as a skill, depending on where they're placed in the organization. I really feel strongly about using empowering words to describe difference because we've used words that have been almost derogatory when it comes to difference until we realize that, wait a minute, difference When placed appropriately and given resources, it can be a game changer for any organization, group. It's an addition. It's not a subtraction. It's a value add, not a deficit for sure. Love that. I am on a mission myself as a therapist to get the word disorder out of the language of counselors and psychiatrists because it's it's a compensatory strategy, not a disorder. And sometimes it's Mm -hmm. actually a superpower. I 100% agree with you on that. Excellent. This is a loaded question. Okay. What do you think some of the most pressing issues are today regarding diversity? Uh, Well, a few things. 
I think one of the first things that we do need to think about is what does it truly mean to be an ally? I remember it was a couple of years ago. I think it was either 2020 or 2021. Webster's Dictionary every year declares the word of the year. Ally or allyship was the word of the year. What I thought was really interesting about that was, especially during the pandemic year, was that people were still enough to notice things that were going on around them that just simply weren't right. And they were still enough to think about how do I respond appropriately? Given that allyship became a really hot topic whenever you looked at the books that were selling quickly during that time period, they were all about allyship or DEI work. Allyship is something that we need to continue to consider. I have a good friend of mine who does similar work, and she says, we always want to have a bias towards action, meaning that we want to lean towards action rather than what we may traditionally do is lean towards inaction, where we don't want to take action on something because we're either afraid or, oh, that doesn't concern me, so let me create some distance. And so I think allyship is one of the number one topics that we need to consider because it requires action. It requires folks not to be bystanders. I kind of use it this way. When we think about allyship, God forbid, let's think about, God forbid, Shauna is in an accident, a car accident or whatever on the street. In some states and some municipalities, if Kim witnessed Shauna in an accident and didn't do anything about it, charges brought up against Kim because she did not intervene for the well-being of Shauna in that moment. We see DEI, DEIB, car accidents happening around us all the time. And oftentimes we don't do anything about it. (laughs) With technology now, it gets even more interesting because we pull up our phone and we film it and we still don't do anything about it. Given that, what does it mean to be an ally that is serious about this work, that wants to intervene even as they're uncomfortable doing it? And what does it mean not to be performative? Meaning that I want to be an ally, but it's not just lip service for me. When it's uncomfortable, I'm still willing to do the right thing. Allyship probably rises to the top of my list of things that we need to focus on. There's a laundry list of things, but I think allyship is pretty close to the top. I think that that's a really important thing to talk about because allies do risk a lot when they go into action. It is difficult. And sometimes people can convince themselves, well, so-and-so won't like me if I do that or say that. And, uh, and so the inaction remains. Right. I agree. It is about action. It is about speaking up when we see things. And I would add, as a member of the majority culture here in the United States, that sometimes it requires focus because we don't always see the things that someone else might see because, as you said, Mm. it doesn't affect us. So we're not looking for those micro inequities or those things that sometimes are problematic. Mm. I was shopping with a diversity partner. We do training together and he's a black man and I'm a white female. And we went to Walmart to buy some things to have in our hotel rooms. I went through the checkout. We were not known at this store to the checker or anything. I go through Mm -hmm. the checkout. I hand the woman my credit card. She swipes it and gives me my merchandise. And I go and stand on the side waiting for my friend who does the same thing gives her the credit card, and she asked him for ID. And I said, excuse me, you didn't ask me for ID. Why are Ah. you asking him for ID? That didn't make any sense. And to me, the only reason could be because he had a different complexion than I did. 
Uh-huh. She couldn't even answer my question. She got a little flustered because I think it was just a go-to response for her. It was mm-hmm. just, okay, I need to ask for ID because this person might be using someone else's credit card, but never thought that about me. I once was doing diversity training and I had a white woman in the audience raise her hand and said, I had a really good friend who was black when I was younger and we used to go shopping together and we went shopping and I would do the shoplifting because my friend would be followed by the person that was in the store and I could take anything I wanted. She wasn't Uh bragging because she was a shoplifter. She was ashamed of that part, but making the point that it was predictable what was going to happen when those two young girls went into a store. Yeah, that's right. You have to notice and be willing to speak up. Yeah, and be willing to speak up. And I think what's so powerful about your example, my friend that I do a lot of work with, she identifies as a white female, blonde haired, blue eyes. We do all this great work on DEI together. We have sons that are similar ages, about 12 years old, about same size, two pretty big guys, five, four, they play football, all of that. What was very interesting was once we did a training together and I used her and her family as an example, if you will, when I asked her a very basic question, I said, Tara, if you told your son to walk down into the corner store to get himself a Gatorade before football practice, what would you tell him to do exactly? Would you give him some instructions on that? You know, of course, you give him a little money. What would you tell him to do? And she said, oh, I just tell him to walk in the store, pick out what you want, go to the front, pay for it and and walk out and make sure you get football practice on time as a white female mom of a white male son. When I talk to my son, who's almost the exact same age, big guy, same size as her son, both play football. I would tell my son a different process because of that very same reason that you mentioned before. Trey, when you go to the corner store to get your Gatorade, leave your book bag at the front door so that no one can accuse you of stealing or putting something in your backpack that you haven't paid for. So put it there. Never put your hands in your pockets so that people aren't assuming, again, that you're taking something. Go get your Gatorade. Don't fool around. Go straight to the cash register, pay for your Gatorade, ask for a receipt and a bag, again, proving that you did not take something. Go pick up your backpack and get out of there. I've given my son a laundry list of to-dos because I know the perception is he shows up as a tall, big, black male, not my 12-year-old baby (laughs) to some people, and there will be the assumption of wrongdoing. Whereas for Tara's son, it will not be the assumption of wrongdoing. So he has different rules to follow. Now, what's interesting about the allyship piece that we were talking about before is as the parent, as the adult, as the person that's learning how to be a better ally, even recognizing that two different processes exist because of skin color is what's part of the allyship process. With that, I think that's what feeds into this recognition of there are certain people that have fewer steps in life and other folks that have more steps in life and questioning why and always questioning why. Yeah. It's the word that people don't like, but it's that privilege word. I have the privilege that I did not have to worry about my children being arrested for shoplifting, unless of course Mm -hmm. they were shoplifting and then they should have been arrested. Or another example, I never knew this phrase and I'm going to say it and you're going to say what? Never heard until I was doing this work, the phrase 10 and two. I didn't know what that was. Right, right. I never educated my sons about 10 and 2. 
for the rest of you who may not know what 10 and 2 means, it's the position on the clock or the steering wheel where Mm -hmm. people of color have been taught to put their hands if they're being pulled over for anything. Don't make any sudden moves. Those of you who've ever been in a car with me, you know that I like to drive a little fast sometimes and I've been pulled over for speeding more than once. The police officer will say driver's license and registration, and I never think about leaning over, opening the glove box to get out the registration, rummaging through my purse to get my driver's license. That's never been a problem for me. But if I Mm -hmm. looked more like you, Shauna, I could be shot, or if I were a male, even more so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is the recognition Mm -hmm. that things are not the same for people. Mm -hmm. They're just not. Absolutely. If you're not clear about that and you're denying that, it's because you don't want to see or you're in a place where you don't have the opportunity to see. I grew up in this little Mm -hmm. tiny town that had no people of color whatsoever. The diversity in our town was what Christian church did you go to? It was Catholic and Protestant. And then there were the heathens that didn't attend church. And I use heathen like that's what the people who attended church thought of them. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah, crazy stuff. What does the journey look like for people like me, white folks, who grapple with topics of diversity, Shauna, from your perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. The journey is really important around the awakening moment. And I know that the word woke has been politicized a lot, and I'm not going down that route necessarily. What I am saying is awareness. Going back to our point around the differences between my son and my friend's son that go to the store micro moments like that, that people become aware of. And what's really tough about that journey as well is the new awareness, the lack of awareness previously, and then how that makes people think about their upbringing and people that they love around them. I'll give you a great example of this too, where let's say you're a white individual You are now awakening to the experiences of non-white people around you, which then unfortunately becomes this questioning of, why didn't mom and dad tell me? Why didn't my grandparents tell me? Why didn't anybody tell me? I've grown at this point. And I've been in this place where I have been simply, I don't even want to say cushioned or, or any of that bubble. I want to say I've been separate and apart from the experiences of other people. How can I take ownership of that without not loving family and friends, without being a taint or a bruise on my hometown or people that I love and good memories? Why is it that I have to now think about both and? And so that's the first piece I think that's tough for people when they look back and think, oh, my family wasn't as accepting as I thought. Or my parents that I adore use words that are not appropriate. And I never knew that. And now I'm using words that aren't appropriate. That awakening and the implication of loved ones that either kept you separate from that intentionally or unintentionally or perpetuated bad behavior in you. That's the first piece, I think, is that awakening piece. Then the second piece is either the guilt or defensiveness around that. I think it's two sides to the same coin of, oh, I'm just going to keep weeping because I didn't know. And I'm just going to be so sad and cry about it. And I'm going to be emotive about it. I'm not invalidating your feelings, but for people who look like me and my sons and my family, you crying all day about not knowing doesn't help us. It's not allyship. I understand you're emoting. And at the same time, it's not allyship. It's processing, but it's not allyship. Then we get to the defensiveness piece. 
I call them perfectly logical explanations when I'm explaining things to people. Well, it makes perfectly logical sense that I wouldn't know about Shauna and her family's experiences because I was in a 99.999% white hometown. Okay, that is true. And at the same time, how can we hold both truths? Yes, I grew up in a majority white hometown experience, Protestant, Christian, all these other things. And I'm responsible for learning moving forward now that I know both at the same time, because the defensiveness, what that does is it continues to root down into what you're already in and still flies in the face of allyship. We can name things as true, just like you did very well, Kim, where you said, you know, this is how I grew up. This is how I was raised. And I've got work to do at the very same time. Those two statements are not incompatible. You can be both and at the very same time. Right. Absolutely. And I fear that the defensiveness is rooted in wanting to stay inside that comfort zone. We all have a comfort zone where there's no cognitive dissonance, where we can just believe that we did the best we could and there's nothing wrong and we can just stick our head in the sand and stay feeling good. But doing the work of an ally clearly involves stepping out of that comfort zone. And that's where all the wonderful, good things happen. Yeah, there may be some discomfort for sure, Mm -hmm. but the growth, it's just amazing to learn about other people. It's one of the things I love most about traveling is getting to different places and not only seeing the geographic diversity, but seeing the social and cultural diversity too. Not Mm -hmm. to mention the food. The food is probably number one on my list. That's what gets me in trouble, Kim, is the food. Yeah, absolutely. I know you said you don't want to really necessarily talk politics, but I want to ask this question because we cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that diversity has become politicized. Just with that word, whoa, I keep saying, I sure would rather be woke than asleep. Who wants to be asleep? (laughs) That just is nuts to me. That's right. Knowing that that difference will be front and center during our coming presidential election, how do we take care of ourselves knowing Mm. that that's what's coming and still do the work that needs to be done? Yeah, yeah. Well, I spent the majority of my career in higher education. And as you can imagine, on college campuses, university campuses, the goal of education is to be able to understand your point of view, other points of view, and be able to discuss it eloquently with other people. And so every four years, every two years, we always knew that, yes, we're going to have on campus, especially if you're at a public campus, you're going to have the uprising of energy around these particular elections. And so let's not act like it's not going to happen. It happens every two years, every four years. Given that, my concern every year when it comes to politics, when it comes to the U.S.-centric approach to this work, if you really think about it, the U.S. is very focused on debate rather than dialogue. That's where it becomes the challenge of, I want to win and I need to win. Even our elections are set up for who won the debate last night. That's Mm -hmm. the first thing that people ask when they wake up in the morning, even if they didn't watch the debate. Given that, I think that's where the challenge lies is that even for those of us who prefer dialogue, we show up places not knowing that a debate just broke out. (laughs) 
I wasn't trying to win this conversation with you, Kim. I was having a dialogue with you. And the goal of this conversation is not winning. The goal of this conversation is deeper understanding. And so part of taking care of ourselves over the next year, especially when it comes to DEIB topics is, yes, I'm the type of person that, yeah, I do want to hear lots of different perspectives. I do want to hear lots of different points of view. I do want to get information from various places. And I know how to turn it off. (laughs) I know how to turn it off because as a person that represents a number of different oppressed groups, I already live it. I do it as my professional full-time work every single day. And even when I stop working and I push back from this computer, there are still debates, conversation, and news going on at the same time. So it's easy to have this barrage of information. I'm not anti-information. I'm an academic by training and by nature. What I am saying, at some point, you need to turn on the trash TV instead. (laughs) At some point, you need to just have fun and go outside and take a walk or play with your kids or your grandkids or go down and play a game of pickup basketball. You need to do something that intentionally separates yourself from these conversations because everybody reaches their tipping point. Going back to your point around comfort, and specifically, if you identify as a white person, I strongly encourage you to do what I call comfort plus one, meaning take at least one step out of your comfort zone every single day. Also knowing that there's a breaking point because I'm not a mental health professional, but what I do know is that we need to be very careful when it comes to words like trigger, for example, especially for white individuals that are encountering this work, because we have to question, is this discomfort? Meaning this is a conversation about DIB that I've never had before and I've never been challenged to have it before. So yeah, I am a little uncomfortable versus no, this is an actual trigger that's taking me into a spiral around my mental health because those two things can be different. Like Shauna going right now to the gym and saying, oh, I'm going to go pick up this 50 pound weight. That's dangerous. Hello, should not do that. I should go pick up maybe the 10 or 15 pound weight that's still uncomfortable for me where I am, but it's not dangerous as the 50 pound weight is. And so making that distinction as a white person who is still on their journey or very early in their journey in DEI, you have to make the distinction between what's a true trigger and what's simply discomfort because they can be quite different and we don't want to mix the two. Yeah, that's right. I find for myself, I know my stopping point is when I start to feel (laughs) angry. If I'm feeling angry, Uh I know that I'm in fight or flight mode. And I know that fighting is not going to move the situation forward or further understanding. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling angry, I know I need to take a break until I can come back. If I decide to come back and start the conversation over again from a more neutral position. I get plenty of opportunity to practice those conversations because my children live in Northeast Pennsylvania. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the political landscape in Northeast Pennsylvania, but when I go back there to visit, I still see a lot of Trump-Pence signs on lawns. It's a very conservative area. I'm not afraid to have these conversations and people always bring them to me because I'm the crazy liberal that left Wayne County to move to Chicago. So they all want to change my mind. And I love that you said Mm -hmm. it's not a debate. It's a conversation or a dialogue because my goal is not to change other people's opinions. My goal is to understand them first. Like Stephen Covey said, seek first to understand, then to be understood. 
And I really do that. And I get practice with my sons because my sons vote conservatively. They are hunters, they're gun owners. Their single issue is gun ownership. They'll vote for the Republican candidate because they have the NRA on their side. And so we'll have these conversations about other issues that are affected. They hear me out because I'm their mother and they respect me, but I also hear them out because I love them and I want to hear why they think the way that they do. It doesn't change our opinions, but it definitely broadens our perspective. It helps us be more understanding of other people that we may encounter. I really, really like that. Absolutely. How do you work with resistant people or even whole organizations who might be resistant to DIV? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, great question. We have two things that we have them to do is first identify them and then work with them. I don't know if you recall, there was this movie that came out a few years ago. It was called The Invisible Man, and it was a remake of an older movie where this woman was trying to identify where this invisible man was in her home. Oftentimes, resistors can be that invisible person that you don't pick up on as easily. There are some that you know flat out, we are not going to agree. I don't even want you here as a DEI person doing this work. And I'm making that very clear to you. Thank you. I can easily see you and I know how to manage you. So that's one piece. But for those that aren't as easily identifiable, how do you identify them? There's a number of different ways to do that, whether it's literally stonewalling where they silence themselves around you or they do not participate. Those are ways to pick up on that. Also, too, individuals who, this is my favorite phrase of resistors, undercover resistors here, where they say, Shauna, absolutely, I agree with you on every point. And then they start giving me every reason why something won't work. They say they agree, but then they completely pick apart the rationale of DEIB work in their organization. That's another one. Also, too, those that motivate others not to participate. They should be on the campaign trail because they are true leaders. They can move people in a certain way. People do that oftentimes in organizations and they poke holes into the credibility or the work of the individual. Even when it comes to flat out disruption of particular things where I've worked with organizations that said, well, no, we didn't get the reports that you sent about XYZ when I have evidence that they did. Or this communication only goes so far, it doesn't go everywhere it needs to go. And so identifying who those resistors are in the organization, that's the first step. Then the second step when it comes to resistance Thinking about how relevant they are to the process, because if they are not relevant to the process, the train can keep moving down the track. You notice when you get on and off a train, there are some people that stay on the platform and others that get on. They may be an individual that may need to stay on the platform because the train needs to keep moving and we're not going to hold up our timeline for that person or those individuals. The other piece, too, is that when it comes to you're asking a great question about resistors, which connects to managing change, right? With managing change, sometimes it's a requirement to show those individuals how their values align or not. And if their values don't align, how do they choose to remove themselves from this process as it moves forward? If their values do align, they may simply need more information and then they back away from the resistance. Now, I say that with a little asterisk at the bottom of those that need more information to want to do the work, because that also can be a symptom of resistance. I call them the insatiables. There's never enough data or information on the planet to convince them to be on board this train. So I have to stop at a certain point because and my organization, as Gold Enterprises does this work, we cannot let an insatiable derail the process because there's never enough information. 
If you ask me for some data, I'm happy to provide that. But if you're constantly asking me for data to the point that you will not move until you get it, then you are, in fact, a resistor. I can't derail my work because you're insatiable. And so given that, I think those are just a number of different ways. I even created this whole resistance diagnostic of how do you determine someone's a resistor or not? What are the signs? What are the characteristics? Because it's so prevalent that you have the invisible person in your organization that may not be blatant in your face, but you still need to identify them in order to manage the change that you want to see in the organization. Yeah, that's awesome. I never thought about that, but you're right. And there's so many different types. They're not all the same. You can't treat them the same. There's diversity among the resistors. That's right. Mm. Exactly. That's right. What do you think about the whole woke agenda or the politicians who sometimes call DEI programs racist and they're banning books about African-American history? That has to be Mm -hmm. incredibly painful for someone like you, as well as for me. Keeping information from people who want it is a terrible thing to do in a democracy. When we start thinking about the woke movement again, but also the book banning piece, what I think is really challenging is when information about anything is withheld, especially in a democracy. I don't care what the topic is. It happens to apply to race right now, but it can be any topic. Having information intentionally blocked from people is a problem. But when we're talking about painting, we're talking about schools. We're talking about young people. We're talking about young minds that we want to train to not only be able to read at all and comprehend, but also critical thinking skills. Let's go back to our conversation about comfort and particularly white comfort. I am not uncomfortable if my child goes on to the high school level and he is invited to read the 1619 Project. I'm not uncomfortable with that. Why? Because I want my child to be able to read, number one. I want my child to be able to comprehend. And I want my child to have critical thinking skills, whether he accepts the 1619 Project experience or not. I want him to have critical thinking skills. And so there's more to it than just what's in the book. We're talking about young people. What I think is extremely challenging is that remember when we talked about allyship before and you have folks that are grown and they're professionals and so forth. That's exactly how we get to be grown people who have not been aware is that you were a young person that wasn't aware and you grew up to be an adult that wasn't aware. With the book banning piece, number one, and I'm not saying this facetiously, I'm saying this in real time. I need the folks that want to consider banning a book I want evidence that they actually read the book to know what they disagree with. Sometimes we disagree with things that are threatening, despite the fact that we haven't taken them in yet. So read the book first. Read it. Then if you have a case for banning a book, my question is, I'm not sure that there's any book that rises to the level of banning, even the ones that I disagree with. The book banning piece, unfortunately, becomes a great way to, I would say, be manipulative by using children in K through 12 education and teachers as pawns in a process that actually should be open wide. Grieve for our librarians. We have librarians across this country that do incredible work. We end up seeing that outside of K-12 through education, our public librarians, our community libraries, our public educators end up taking the brunt of the responsibility of saying, hey, I know you can't read 1619 Project in class. We have it here and you're welcome to read it here without being threatened about it. And if you'd like to even put together a book club on this particular book because you're not allowed to do it in school, you can safely do it here. 
we're putting them in a situation where they're now having to be another layer of educators. One, I encourage people to read the actual books that they say they want to ban. Secondly, I want them to think about what if the books that you appreciate and support were also banned because banning goes both ways. It goes with books that you agree with and books that you don't agree with. And then the next piece is for the authors that poured their hearts and their lives and some of them, their livelihoods into publishing those books. Think about an entire industry that you're obliterating because you're afraid of what a book might say and who might believe it. There are so many different problems. I can go on and on just about book banning alone, but I'm really discouraged by the lack of critical thinking that that indicates. That's a problem for me. Whether you agree with it or not, I'm a fan of critical thinkers. (laughs) I'm a fan of critical thinkers, whether they agree with me or not. I'm a fan of critical thinkers. That's right. What makes me chuckle a little bit in the beginning Mm -hmm. of book banning, this won't be true if it continues a generation or two down the road. But in the beginning of book banning, when one group says you can't read these books, what that does to people is it makes them want to go out and read the book. That's it. People are reading books that they would never have read before because they're on a banned book list, which makes me chuckle because it's so counterproductive to what they're trying to do. But I do know that over time, those books just won't be available and that will be a true shame. And as an author who wrote a book about diversity, even so far, I don't have enough sales for them to be looking at my book being banned. But you're right. The amount of money that authors spend to publish a book, if they're publishing their own book, can be very expensive. It's just sad to think that they might be banned. And guess who gets the brunt of that? Women, people of color, LGBT folks, already oppressed groups that are then affected by book banning. So the very people that you don't want to learn about are directly affected. People like us, small businesses. Those are the people that are directly affected. So it's like a double oppression at the very same time, which is truly a shame. But you're right. When a book gets banned, as soon as it gets banned, the sales go up. And and so I I appreciate that effect, but I don't want that to be a long-term strategy necessarily. Definitely not. Keeping with the title of my podcast, Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, I like to ask my guest if you'd be willing to share one choice you made that had a positive impact on your life. Yeah, yeah. One of my best choices that had a positive impact on my life is when, ironically, I chose to go into this field. I remember many years ago when I was in my doctoral program, I had a mentor, an African-American male mentor that I deeply respect, still respect to this day. He is just a lion when it comes to state law and education. He told me many years ago, Shauna, you might not want to go into diversity, equity, and inclusion work as a profession because it pigeonholes you and what you can do and who you can be and how people perceive you. For a while, I tried not to. I tried to be more of a generalist, especially when it came to education. I tried really hard, but it was my calling. It was what I was asked to do. It was what I was good at. It was my easiest job. Someone calls me and says, hey, can you do a session on anti-racism fundamentals? I could whip it out quickly. It just ended up being both my profession, but also a gift. Part of me still deeply respects him, but yet at the same time, I'm glad I didn't pressure myself into completely separating myself from DEIB work. Because now, as you can see, just by me virtually being on your podcast here, we now know that it's actually impossible to pigeonhole DEIB because it affects everyone, everywhere, in every situation, in every industry. 
Not that I went out to say, hey, I'm going to prove you wrong, but I'm so glad that I made the decision to put that advice to the side. Take all the other advice that he gave me. And now here we are with Gold Enterprises a few years into this work, still gratefully doing this work, despite still also wanting to work myself out of the need for a job because I would love for organizations not to have to call people like me to do this type of work because it's already happening and it's happening in full force. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What's coming up next for you and Gold Enterprises? Do you have anything to tell our audience about? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing I would say is that I'm not sure when we're going live with this particular podcast, but for two years, actually in the middle of the pandemic, my colleague, Dr. Lisa Ingerfield out in Denver, Colorado, we launched a podcast called the Unfazed Podcast. And we talked about a specific lane. We talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion in endurance sport, because that's how we met each other through endurance sport, marathons, triathlons, marathon swimming. We met each other through that world that we shared. We did that for two years during the pandemic and ended up being a really useful tool for a lot of businesses and organizations to do good, deep, and free professional development for their staff. We even had people that called us or sent us an email that said, hey, we let our entire staff listen to your podcast during staff meetings, and then we have discussions about it. We were floored to hear that. We took a break from that, and we decided, hey, let's relaunch, but let's do it differently in a way that's more accessible, especially using YouTube technology. And so we're relaunching now. Unfazed, unedited on YouTube is being relaunched on November 21st. I would encourage people to go out to YouTube and search Unfazed, Unedited. You'll find us there. We're already dropping little sneak peeks. We have 115 podcasts in our archive that talk about these very same topics that you and I have talked about on a much deeper level. They're about 30, 40 minutes long. I encourage people to go to the archives of Unfazed podcasts, but then also go to the new and improved Unfazed, Unedited on YouTube and find us there as we roll out this venture that really opens up the floodgates of DEIB to talk about it in all industries, not just in endurance sport. We probably will sneak in a little bit about the Paris Olympics next year, but it's Uh, going to be across the board where anyone can appreciate, enjoy it, and hopefully apply it in their work. Beautiful. I love that. I'll be tuning in for sure. So if anybody listening wants to get a hold of you for any further information or even to bring you in for some DEIB work, how would they do that? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. What I'd encourage you to do is go to my website, goldenterprisesllc.com. You can find us there on the website. You can shoot us an email, info at goldenterprisesllc.com, or you can find us anywhere, LinkedIn or Instagram, any social media. You'll also find me there under Gold Enterprises LLC or Shauna Payne Gold. You'll find me there as well. We do like to support organizations that are interested in this work, no matter where you are on the journey. We'll figure out where you are and we'll get you to those next steps. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today, Shauna. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure our guests have as well. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when we'll be changing our conversation to education with Dr. Don Parker, a returning guest. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, 
remember to subscribe.